My name's Emerson Malone. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie, a writer with the Daily Emerald. This is the third episode of our new series, Spotlight on Science. In this series, we'll bring in some members of the University of Oregon science community and ask them to explain their research in simple language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Nick Allen, professor of clinical psychology and director of the Center for Digital Mental Health at the UO. We spoke about his involvement with the Digital Mental Health Center and the Lewis Center for Neuroimaging, along with his musical side projects. Let's get to it. Okay, well, thank you again for uh, speaking with me today. This is really exciting. Um, yeah, again, we've had no one like yourself on before, so um, let's just dive right into it. Um, so I know you're a part of the uh, Lewis Center for Neuroimaging. You're involved with them. Um, what projects are you working on uh, with the center right now? So we have two projects. One is a uh, study of uh, young adolescent girls who um, who are going through puberty. And one of the reasons we want to study them is because we know that as girls go through puberty, there's a very dramatic increase in the number of them that experience mental health problems. So there's some connection between puberty and mental health that um, we don't fully understand the reasons for it. You know, we've looked at hormones, we've looked at uh, school transitions, we've looked at changes in body type and th- a lot of different factors. One of the things that we haven't looked at enough is what's happening in the brain. And so in this particular study, uh, we're following girls as they go through puberty, we're collecting data on their hormones, we're collecting data on their um, mental health, we're collecting data on their uh, how they feel about themselves, how they feel about their social relationships, but we're also looking at their how their brain is developing. And so one of the goals of that study is to understand how, as people go through puberty, how does that affect the brain, how it's developing, and also how that affects your thinking and feeling in a way that might put some people at risk for greater uh, mental health problems. Exactly. And what have you found so far? What's, what's been surprising to you? So that study's ongoing, and we don't have a lot of findings from that particular study, but as is usually the way, we've done a number of studies leading up to that on on these same issues. So I guess one of the things that's been really surprising is just how strong the effect of puberty is on, on mental health and how it's the picture is much clearer for girls than it is for boys. So, for example, uh, girls who go through puberty earlier or who are at more advanced stages of puberty tend to have um, much higher risk of having a mental health problem, and that can be depression, it can be anxiety, it can be self-harming, uh, it can be uh, substance use. Boys, the picture is much less clear. And so, for example, with boys, we see that there seems to be some risk associated with being what we call off time. That is, whether you go through puberty earlier or you go through puberty later than your than your friends, you know, than the people who were about your age. So that's been really interesting. The other thing that we've really been interested in is, you know, as I said before, what role the brain plays in that. And we have some data already that shows that the brain might be a really critical uh, factor in this relationship. In fact, one of the ways in which the 
pubertal hormones affect people's feelings and thinking is because it changes the brain. Mm-hmm. And it changes the brain in a much broader way than we thought. You know, like when you think about puberty, you think about sex usually. You right. know, you think about sexual development, you think about pubic hair and developing breasts and, you know, underarm hair and things like this right, right. and getting ready to to kind of procreate. Right. But in fact, the changes of puberty are much broader than that. You know, we find that it changes the way people think and and the way they feel not just about issues to do with sex, but also about relationships more generally. So, you know, how you feel about friends, how you mm. feel about your parents, mm. how you think about yourself uh, and what m- makes you a good person or a bad person tends to change all around puberty as well. So there's this much broader impact of puberty on, um, on, on the way people think and feel than just this kind of sexual development, mm. which is what most people focus on. Yeah, I think it's a common misconception that I think people have. It's, it's not exclusively... Um, as you were saying, it's not exclusively for you know reproductive development. Basically, it's it's for it's a whole transform transformative process. Yep. it's really moving from kind of a youth to an adult stage. Really, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's that transition. You're going from a person who is largely dependent on your parents and the environment around you to sustain yourself to a person who's independent, and that's the process of adolescence. You know, which is this process that we're so interested in. Right. Um, I'm curious, what is, uh, what is, I think most people wouldn't know, what does a brain scan kind of look like and how does it, how does it work? Right. Well, <laughs> a brain scan, we, we actually have a, a number of different types of brain scan. Mm-hmm. And so some of them are what we call uh, structural brain scans, which is basically taking a picture. It's like a photograph. It's like an X-ray of what the structures of the brain look like. So, you know, what's the shape and size? Where, as you probably know, the brain's got all this folding on it, and so the pattern of folding can be interesting. The pattern of uh, the actual physical neurons that connect things up, and so you can take photos of all of this, and 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 you get this picture of the brain. Generally, these kind of grainy black and white pictures they don't look like great pictures. Yeah. But um, but that's a structural brain scan. And then the other kind of brain scan we get is one that's about what the brain is doing. Mm-hmm. So it's about activity. And so that's what we call a functional brain scan. And a functional brain scan shows you a hot spot, if you like, in the brain, a part of the brain that's working hard at a given time. And so then you can overlay the two of these so that you have the structure there and then you also have this activity, this hot spot of activity, and you can say, ah, when the person's doing this kind of task, this part of the brain is is working. It's mm. more active. Mm. That's kind of relates to all those studies where it's like, oh, so-and-so, you know, this brand of chip is, you know, produces the same results as some drug, and then because it'd be the same part of the brain lights up in right. a study. Right. That's where they get all that data That's right. From. So yeah. they so they look at the, the, the impact of different kinds of activities, and sometimes you see that the two things that you thought are quite separate are actually – uh, recruiting the same part of the brain. Right. I mean, I took a brain behavior class once, and I remember the brain is organized in very odd ways, too. It's not necessarily like the parts, especially for the parts of the body that what controls movement, too, is it's not necessarily in order. It's kind of this seemingly random association. So I think that those connections are really interesting to look at, yeah. So, the, yeah, so the, we sometimes use the metaphor of saying the brain is like an onion, in that it has layers, and in the in the middle you've got uh, the most evolutionarily old part of the brain. Right. And the nature of evolution is that it doesn't kind of go back to square one and redesign things. It just tweaks 
right. over generation to generation. And so you get this kind of overlaying of mm. new uh, neural processes and new neural material. And so you wind up with this onion-like, you know, where the outer skin, if you right. like, of the under uh, onion is the is the kind of the newest part of the mm. brain that's developed most recently. And in the centre, you've got this very old part of the brain that looks very similar in shape and structure to, you know, the brain of a rat or a, mm. or a other, you know, another kind of vertebrate that's, you know, we think of as much less evolved than human beings. Right. Um, and that's kind of more the emotional center of the brain, correct? Mm-hmm. Kind of, it's more based on like, you know, pr- you know, primal feelings and kind of just urges, whereas the outer part of the brain is more cognitive function and etc. Exactly. Um, anyway, that's that's super interesting. Um, let's move on maybe to the center for digital metal. Meta, yeah, sorry, center for digital mental health. Yes. Um, I was looking at the website, really interesting stuff, and it, it seems like you're doing about a thousand projects at once. Um, <laughs> maybe what's one of the projects that you're really excited about that you want to uh, talk about? Yeah, so the the Center for Digital Mental Health is a new thing at the University of Oregon, and we've, we've set it up because one of the things that we've really been interested in is how can you use the uh, the digital footprint that people are creating when they interact with their devices, particularly their phones and laptops and, and maybe sometimes even a wearable device like a wrist, you know, like a Fitbit or something like mm-hmm. that. The fact is that we're in a very unique time in history in terms of the study of behavior because people are now quantifying an enormous amount of their behavior just through their natural interactions with their consumer devices. and. Right. And of course, that creates all sorts of problems. You know, we've got problems with privacy and, you know, how ethical use of that data. These are very important issues. And of course, it's been the basis of concerns about corporations or governments spying on people. Right. But the question that we're really interested in is given that data exists, how can that be used to actually empower people? so that they have a greater understanding of their mental health Mm. and that they know how to take action to Mm. look after themselves better. So for that reason, we've been developing a set of tools that can sit on people's uh, cell phones and can characterize, you know, what's happening in their social interactions, what's happening with their mood, what's happening with their um, with their levels of physical activity, what's happening with their sleep, you know, what what are we seeing in the language, in the facial expressions, in the voice, in the mm. physical activity, and the patterns of how they move around that tell us something about their um, their mental health. Mm. And the ultimate goal of this kind of tool is to be able to predict moments when people need mental health support. One of the great challenges in mental health is that very often when people are having a crisis and they really need support the most, they're not in touch with services at that time. That's often when they're alone, Mm. you know, they're in a different phase of their life that, you know, if they've seen someone clinically, a therapist or a psychiatrist or something, they're not with that person at that time. Mm. And so this this is a question of it's a big challenge. If we can reach out to people at that time and and give them useful information that helps them to maybe take something that's starting to evolve into a dangerous situation for them and bend it in a different direction because we create an awareness of that early mm-hmm. on. So the person's like perhaps their mood's starting to deteriorate. They're starting to feel a bit depressed before they're really in a bad state of depression where it's very hard for them to dig out. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can catch that early and teach them how to move, make a different choice, you know, and, and to mm-hmm. move away from that. 
Um, and our ultimate goal with this kind of tool, uh, the thing that we're really working towards is to be able to prevent suicide because suicide is often a very impulsive act. You know, people mm. often go, you know, go from not feeling suicidal to feeling very suicidal fairly quickly. Mm. And so being able to catch that and being able to push to people information, you know, the therapist's phone number, a friend that they could call, uh, a reason for living that they've talked about before or something like that that might be helpful, some coping skill that they could use in that moment. And it's much more powerful because it's happening in the moment when the mm -hmm. person needs it, not in the therapist's office when they may be feeling fine. Right. And so would that kind of take the form of some kind of like phone notification kind of as you notice the person experiencing these mm -hmm. kind of behaviors, they would kind of like flash a notification mm -hmm. on their phones and hey, call this number or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So it would be something like that. You know, one of the things is, as I said before, we want to make sure that people are personally empowered in this situation so right. they would get to make the choices about what happens. Right. It could be something like a phone notification. It could automatically contact someone if that's what they want to happen, uh, you know, a friend or a, or a therapist or something like that. Uh, it could it could be something that kind of uh, pushes some information to them about, you know, local resources. Where would you go if you were in crisis? You know, what are the local... Uh, mental health services. So there's lots of different forms that can right. take, but you would probably work with people individually to get them to sort of help de design what was going to be most useful to, for them at those particular times. I'm curious, who came up with, were you the one who came up with the idea for this digital kind of revolution in psychology sort of? I wouldn't claim it was just my idea. I think we're doing work that's 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 pretty cutting edge in this area, but there is a number of people around the world doing this kind of work. So it's a it's a movement and I must say there's there's been a very big movement in what people call digital health generally. Mm -hmm. So in the medical profession, people are starting to use digital technologies to detect these kinds of things. For example, uh, in the treatment of Parkinson's disease, you know there's a, there's now people can, measure tremors uh, objectively by getting people to wear a wrist wearable, mm. which measures their movement. And mm. so this is a way that neurologists are using to track their patients and to see if their medications are helping. So there's a big development in, in, in sort of digital medicine and, and, and that sort of thing. We're a part of a smaller group of people who are really applying this to mental health. Right. And uh, it's not just our idea. There's a number of people around, but it's. But I would say it's fair to say it's an emerging area, right. and it's a kind of a, a new thing. I think it's maybe it's new just because it's so challenging. It's hard to kind of. I mean, most other bodily organs are you can kind of diagnose and you can kind of see what's wrong. The brain is a whole other animal. It's really hard to understand. You know, do you, do I this, does this person need actual you know medicinal help, or do mm -hmm. they need more kind of holistic and just kind of caring and nurturing how do you balance that in in the world of in your kind of field i guess well that's that's where i can tie this back to our first part of our conversation mm -hmm. about the neuroimaging right i mean one of the things about neuroimaging is that it gives you this incredibly detailed sense of what's going on in the brain but you've got to get someone to come in and stick their head into this three four million dollar machine right it's not portable it's not out in the real day-to-day -day mm -hmm. aspect of a person's life the cool thing about smartphones and wearables and things like that is that, yes, you're not directly reading the brain, but you are reading behavior, which is what the brain produces. Right. And you're doing it in the person's real day-to-day -day life. So you're getting a picture of how they are uh, 
you know, in their real environment, which of course is the one that really matters to them. That's mm-hmm. where they live their lives. That's right. that's that's what we want to know. In the scanner, yes, you get these beautiful pictures of the brain, but people have to lie still and right. you know stare up and listen to the machine chugging around their head. When you've got the thing right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, and it's kind of anxiety provoking yeah. because you're stuck in this little you know thing with a magnet around your head and you yeah. don't know what's going on. So so you can learn a certain amount from that. But I think we think that in terms of studying the brain, you don't need to just look at the brain itself, but you can also look at what the brain produces, which is behavior. Right. Um, and that's all good stuff. I think that's, I mean, you're just on, it seems like you're on the cutting edge of this kind of work. Um, I think maybe moving to some more like general questions, maybe more personal. Um, when did you know you wanted to be uh, in this field and be a psychologist? Um, kind of what was going on in your life at that point? <laughs> I guess it's kind of a psychology question. Anyway. Yeah, it is. Yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to take that on. But um, so actually I decided I wanted to be a psychologist absurdly early in life. Really? Okay. Like there's very few psychologists who would have this story. I was going to say, it's a pretty specific. Yeah. yeah. But so I, so I, I developed, um, I think I first said I wanted to be a psychologist when I was about 13. Really? And that, and most people discover it in college or in later high school mm-hmm. and decide. So the reason for me was a fairly classic reason, which is that I I wanted to do what my dad did, mm. and my dad was a social worker, mm. except that I was really interested in science, and so I said to my dad, I don't want to I want to do what you do, but I'm kind of like science too, and he said. Well, you should be a psychologist because that combines human behavior and helping and all these things that I do with science. Mm -hmm. And so I said, great, that's for me. Sign me up. (laughs) And so that's what I if someone asked me all the years of high school, what was I going to do? I said, I'm going to be a psychologist. Really? Yeah. And that went. And I don't know anyone else who decided that early (laughs) in life. So it probably makes me very, very odd. What's maybe one of the strangest kind of discoveries or encounters you've had through your career um, up into this point? Either Maybe that's teaching moment. Maybe that's a moment you've had with a, some kind of patient or um, what's kind of maybe a, a, a moment that you really sticks with you? I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things I could yeah. talk about here. Um, one thing that really sticks with me is so I've I've done a I've, I've I'm a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. and so I've worked with a lot of uh, directly with a lot of people dealing with mental health problems in their life and I think that um, one thing that really stuck with me and from my clinical work was that when people are suffering with mental health problems, very often I didn't feel like I was helping them that much. You know, I was I felt like I was really struggling to get through to them to find a way to really be effective in helping them. And on many occasions, the the people I worked with, when we finished our work and they were doing pretty well, they would say to me, you know, that time when I was really so negative and I couldn't see any hope and I couldn't see any way out of this, you just kept believing in me, you kept being positive, you kept being optimistic, and that meant so much to me. And the reason that was surprising was that I had no idea at the time. <laughs> like I thought I was just like throwing rocks into the yeah. sea, you know, like I just there was nothing yeah. getting through. And so what it taught me is that, you know, very often when when you are trying to be supportive to someone, mm-hmm. you, you what you're doing is probably 
giving benefits that you can't see right now. Mm-hmm. And so if you hang in there and you stick with it and you stay positive and you stay kind and supportive and, and you know, you really, you know, try your best to help, you're probably doing something good even if you don't realize it at the time, even if you can't see the evidence immediately. And I think that that's been a great uh, lesson for me in life and also as a therapist. Right. Um, and then maybe this will be the final question. Um, maybe what do you do in like your free time? Like what, what, do you, what do you do to kind of get a release from this maybe? So over the years, I've done lots of things. I've, I've been a musician for most of my life. And so I've, I've played music since I was like an early teenager, right up until now. I've, I've played in bands. And so music has been a great thing. What, what kind of music do you like? Where do you play? Like, yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've played all sorts of music. Okay. So, you know, I'll just say I'm 54. So that will yeah. age me. So yeah. I've, you, there are, you know, there are times the where listeners I, can do the math. Yeah, you can do yeah, the math. Exactly, but yeah. let's put it this way. I was in a punk band. I was in a nice, new wave band. Nice, you know, nice. I, I had a weird haircut, you know, <laughs> all those sorts of things. Um, and then when I got older, I started to play a lot of, you know, like more jazz and funk and rhythm and blues and things like that. Yeah. You know, something a little more... You yeah. know, sedate, but but I, so I've done I've done all of that. I've played in country and western bands. I've play, I've, I've really? play, played across across because my theory is that five percent of every music genre is fantastic, and the rest of it's probably not that good. <laughs> so you just need to you shouldn't hate a genre. You should look for the good music in every genre. Right. Um, so that's one thing I do, and the other thing I do is I run. Ah, of course. And well, so, you're in the right town for that. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. And that's been great. So as you can probably tell, I'm Australian. And um, so I've lived in Eugene for three years, and but I've been a runner for a long time. And so it's nice to come to a, a city where running is a big running culture yeah. and everyone's into it and the community runs are fantastic. Did you, were you able to catch any of the NCAA championships that just recently happened at uh, Hayward Field? Yeah, I didn't I didn't go and see okay. any, no. But uh those are the Oregon Oregon women's yeah. one. That was incredible. So. Spectacular. Yeah. yeah. No, I saw the results of that. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for talking today. I think I think we'll end on that. Um, we're right about at 20 minutes. So. Okay. This has been fantastic. So thank you so much again. Thanks, Frankie. This was the third episode of Spotlight on Science. Big thanks to Professor Allen from the Psychology Department for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.